Welcome back to Ped Sports, your podcast to stay up to date on all the pediatric sports medicine literature. Uh, today, we've got a good list of articles to go over and an even better panel to discuss it. We are going to kick things off, first of all, as usual, by thanking Posna for the sponsorship and support to get this up and running. If you came to us through Peds Ortho, we're one of the other Posna podcasts. We're glad to have you, and thanks for listening to those. At this point, we're going to go around, introduce everyone, and talk a little bit about ourselves. Uh, my name is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. I'm Cordelia Carter. I, uh, I work at NYU Langone Health in New York City in the Hassenfeld Children's Hospital there. Hey, I'm Neeraj Patel. Uh, I work at Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. Uh, I'm Pam Lang. I'm at the University of Wisconsin and American Family Children's Hospital. All right, great. The first thing we're going to do before we jump into the literature this episode is get to know our host a little bit better. And I'll just start us off. I, I grew up here in New Orleans, so I'm sort of back home where I'm practicing. I grew up uh, in Delaware, which I don't think very many people get to say that. Uh, and I have met Joe Biden because it is a tiny place. <laughs> yeah, so I'm in Chicago, but I grew up in New Jersey. So I'm a Jersey guy, um, Edison, New Jersey, home of the first light bulb. Otherwise, lived all East Coast until I came out here. And I'm a huge Brooklyn Nets fan. And before everyone rolls their eyes, I will tell you that I was a New Jersey Nets fan since the time I was like six years old in 89. So I followed them uh, through the years, you know, the, the many ups and many, many more downs. And so uh, it's an exciting time for us. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, but, good uh, times to come. Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully. I actually grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and like Carter, I'm back in the homeland. Badger by birth, I guess. You would. Awesome. All right. Next question for everyone is, um, what is your sort of favorite hobby or the thing you do with your free time the most? This can be present or this can also be like back in the glory days too. For example, uh, I have no hobbies right now because I've got small kids. So I spend all my free time chasing them around, which is great and, and tons of fun. Um, but, you know, when I do have free time, I try to basically just stay in shape. I used to be a, a big runner and now I'm a, a pathetic runner, but that's still sort of my go to. I'm in the same uh, used to be a big runner, now pathetic runner camp. Pam and I have actually done some running together in Barcelona at Posna meetings. So my two things I love to do, one is exercise, usually running or cycling. And the second is travel. And so my favorite thing is to combine them. Love it. Running tours in foreign places are amazing, by the way. Just Definitely with you. All right. Well, I will diverge from the group here. I absolutely hate running. I've always hated running. I was in the army for like 15 years and I did it because I had to, and I am glad I don't have to do it anymore. So, <laughs> so there, all of you, <laughs> I was actually, or I am actually, cause I guess I'm still here. Um, I'm a, I'm a classically trained singer, did quite a lot of that to relatively high level, um, kind of back in the day and kind of like Carter, <laughs> some of the hobbies have gone by the wayside. Um, but hopefully kind of pick that back up again at some point and, and get back into it. That makes uh, probably the rest of us feel better about our skill level running versus professional singing, but thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, I'm sure you could all run circles around me, so <laughs> wouldn't even be close. <laughs> Last question for the group for today is what is your favorite surgery? What are you sort of, I guess, excited to see on the schedule? I'll start us off to solve for everyone because I obviously had time to think about it feel lame because I just heard someone else give the same answer. And it's not really a sports surgery, um, but I love a hard type three supracondylar when I can walk the resident through it. It's a challenging thing for them, but I'm feeling pretty confident that it's going to go well and can take them through it. I think I feel like it's a, a really good learning experience for them. It's a sort of a big leap and bound in their 
education in Pedes Ortho. Carter, you stole it. You stole mine. I was going to say the same exact thing. <laughs> um, I think you know a lot of times we think of the big, exotic, fancy, rare type of things, and there's just something really satisfying about taking an elbow that's in two different zip codes and very quickly putting it back in the same zip code and putting three pins in and being done. And the kid is instantly feeling better. The family's feeling better and you move on with life. And like you said, the resident gets to do more. They learn something and, and go from there. So yeah. I, I think sometimes it's the simple things in life. So I, I also uh-huh. love me a good type three supercondyl every now and then. So I thought of three. The one I usually answer, uh, actually, I've usually most other people answer too, so I'm surprised so far. I really do love a good um, iliotibial band ACL reconstruction just because it's nice anatomy. It's it's one of those things nobody's ever seen, and so it's fun to teach, uh-huh. and those kids do great. And so I think um, it's one of, I call it cookbook surgery. You do all the steps, and you end up with a cake at the end. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I do really love that one, but, I, but that's a pretty common answer when I've, I've heard it asked before. So then my second answer is um, I, I thought I was thinking about this today. Actually, you may have to edit this out, but it's one of it's those surgeries where um, you actually do make chicken soup out of chicken poop. <laughs> I'm making a lot of baking analogies. Yeah. I haven't, heard, it yet, I haven't heard anything to edit yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's one of it's the terrible discoid where the tissue quality is is just you know you get in and there you think well. I can't make it worse um, and you actually make it better. And, and so, and there's, and you feel like you really have given a kid a chance to, to heal it and, and return with some level of meniscal function. And so that's, that's, I think pretty cool too. And then my third answer was, you know, I've, I've been developing an appreciation for the power of osteotomies. I think, you know, for those of us who are sports trained, we spend so long honing the, the arthroscopic skills because that's essential. And it's not, you know, something that you spend your entire uh, residency or training doing, but then to be able to affect, I think, great change with, uh, you know, a varus producing osteotomy, the distal femur or a tibial tubercle osteotomy is, is pretty, you know, those kids also do great. You can make a seven degree change and have such a powerful effect. It's, it's just pretty cool. Agree. It's great when they, when they like it too. And they're like, ah, my foot pain points forward. This is awesome. Does your dream discoid, is it just a saucerization or are you repairing it also? Uh, no, it's the one where I finish and I'm like, oh, I put 15 stitches in that, right? It, you know, you t- you got to teach the residents three different kinds of menis, you know, of, uh, 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 you, you did the inside out, the outside ends, the all insides, did a little bit of everything, you know, completely unstable and torn and you had to saucerize it. So the ones, I mean, I think uh, the ones that are actually pretty challenging. And then if you really want to add the degree of difficulty, it's the three-year-old and you did it with a wrist scope. True chicken poop. <laughs> chicken poop. <laughs> Pam? I overlap with Cordelia quite a bit with the iliotibial band ACL and osteotomy kind of thing. You know, osteotomies, especially for very visible deformities, are great when you leave the room. And I would add to that open reductions of hips in the DDH population, especially in the, uh, like, toddler to maybe a little bit older kid where maybe you're doing pelvic osteotomy at the same time. A pelvic osteotomy, you know, little pelvis where you can bend so much through, you know, the trirated or the symphysis is pretty cool. Yeah, definitely satisfying. And then I'll just throw in a plug for washing out pus. Like it's <laughs> not um, glamorous. But goodness, do those kids get better quick and like Every once in a while, it just like, you know, you know, you did something good. 
taking all your pus referrals in Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> I don't want to be the pus master or anything like that. But it is, Madison's uh, only like two hours north of Chicago, right? So uh, I know there's the I'll send uh, up. I'll Southern send Septic way. Triangle down there, right? So. <laughs> well, thank you for indulging me. Let's get into these recent papers. So first up, out of arthroscopy is one called cost-effectiveness analysis of non-op versus early drilling for stable OCD lesions of the knee in skeletally immature patients. I really like this one. You know, I think we all know cost-effectiveness analyses can be complex and full of assumptions that sometimes make them a little hard to trust. We probably all sort of dread when they come up in journal clubs sometimes, but um, I thought this one was really practical. It was very conservative, and uh, I think it'll be useful in practice. So overall... The conclusion was that drilling stable OCDs early is probably better than waiting for three to six months for conservative treatment and then drilling the ones that fail. Of course, that means some unnecessary surgeries would happen, um, but it would also save a lot of people three to six months of recovery time. So takeaway number one from this, I think very intentionally by the authors, was that this is cost effective for insurance companies. So they should be willing to pay for early drilling. Um, And takeaway number two is that it's cost-effective for society. And so as surgeons, we should consider offering early drilling to patients and uh, making that decision together with their parents. What do you guys think? What are you guys doing now? And will this paper change anything? There seems to be a shift for sure in terms of patient family expectations and willing to wait out when it comes to treating OCD lesions, it seems like, where you know, we used to be saying six months and now people are like pushing for three months. And it's, it seems like people are willing to try non-operative management for shorter and shorter periods of time. In some ways, I think this supports if we were to offer it earlier, almost based on like demand as well. And I will say just like anecdotally, I've drilled a couple OCD lesions where I was taking them to the OR for a different reason, right? Like one was a ACL, one was like patellar dislocation with loose body, um, something else, like all really recently. And you drill those kids in like six weeks out from surgery, you get x-rays and it's like gone, which is just crazy. And Granted, those kids were kids who probably weren't symptomatic from the OCD lesion, so it's probably a little bit different. But, you know, if you get it early, maybe it does a little better. I don't know. Yeah, I'll say I remember having a conversation with uh, with Kevin Shea, who, you know, as we all know, has a lot of experience and wisdom when it comes to this kind of stuff. And we were looking at data from other study we're doing, and, and you know, he kind of sat back and was like, wow, maybe we should be – a little bit more aggressive about how we treat these in some kids because less than we thought were going on to, to union down the line. And so I think the pendulum is swinging as we learn more about OCD itself. I think certainly the cost part of it is there, but I think as we kind of figure out how these things act and what the natural history is and what happens with different kinds of treatments and stuff like that, I think the pendulum is swinging a little bit maybe. And I'll also add that uh, you know we've had some really good, uh, like Eric Walls, Noma Grand was published a while back and yeah. some other predictive studies and stuff like that, which are, which are useful and helpful, even if they're not perfect. But I think one thing to recognize in a lot of those is it's not like, you know, hundred percent or even 90% of those stable lesions in those kids were healing. Even in some of those, you know, it's only as high as like two thirds or, you know, 80% max for kind of healing. So 
it's not like a slam dunk just because it's a stable lesion, skeletally immature, end of story. So I think I think this is clearly evolving. And uh, I mean, it, this hasn't impacted my practice yet. I still kind of tell the kids when they come in for non-operative treatment, I said, you're probably going to hate me at the end of this, and that's fine. I have enough friends, but we're going to take our sweet time with this and, and get it to heal. I and mean, I've had a couple where it didn't, and then we have to do surgery, and they probably hate me, but it is what it is, you know? So I think to be determined, but this is interesting food for thought as we move forward. Yeah, I agree. I think I think this will change my practice in as much as I, I can uh, feel okay about incorporating at least a discussion about earlier surgical treatment. You know, I think other takeaways from this was this was, I think, so correct me if I, I read it incorrectly, but this is cost effectiveness for payer and society, but not for the individual. And so there's so much about like, what that you know what individual an individual patient and family feel about wanting to avoid surgery, sort of what their like values are regarding that, or frankly, what their co-pays might be. There's not a lot of the nitty gritty with this. This is sort of a more global approach. Just like we have started to at least incorporate, uh, and just in the last couple of years, a discussion about, you know, if we're going to do an, we're going to recommend an MPFL reconstruction in the setting of, you know, an osteochondral injury for a first time patellar dislocator, or we're at least going to talk about a surgical stabilization for a first-time shoulder dislocator. I think this is another example of, whereas we used to say, you know, we always start non-operatively just because that's been our dogma. It's not necessarily best for everybody. And so at least, at least it merits a discussion about earlier surgical treatment. And I think, and I agree with Pam. I mean, I think, you know, there, there are some patients who just say, well, what happens if in six weeks or three months I'm back at square one? And, and that's the, that is the risk of non-operative treatment, right? Is that, is that you don't actually get the outcome that you wanted. And so it's lost time. But if you're somebody who says, well, man, I never want surgery or the risks of surgery sound too great to me, even though for all of us who do surgery all the time, this is not one that has a lot of risks associated with it. I think it comes down to personal choice. And then we thought, well, this is something that we can add to our armamentarium of, of things to discuss with patients. Oh, sorry. The other thing I would say is I, I think there's always a danger of then over-extrapolating this. So, I mean, this study was done with very tight indications, right? It's for skeletally immature kids, more than two years of growth remaining, just for medial femoral, uh, condylar, medial femoral condyle OCD lesions that are stable. I mean, I think um, we all see lesions all, you know, all over the place, other parts of the body, other parts of the knee, and that's not what this is talking about. Yeah, great point. And I, I think kind of along those lines, uh, you could argue that, hey, you know, the medial femoral condyles, condyle lesions seem to be, from what we know, you know, obviously the most common uh, location in the knee, but also in some ways more predictable than lateral femoral condyle trochlear patellar lesions. So maybe, you know, not to extrapolate, but to say, well, if it's cost effective for medial femoral condyle lesions, then, and, and the other ones are even worse actors, you know, is there even more consideration of bringing up the idea of early surgery in some of those other anatomic locations? Again, I don't know the answer, but I think it's just interesting, uh, interesting discussion as we, as we continue to learn more. Yeah. Pam, I think you made a great point about, the rate of success with non-op treatment. And the this study cited another recent paper that showed, I think it was only like 50% uh, approximately healing with non-op. So, Cordier, I completely agree. I'm with you. I'm going to start discussing this with families and making individual decisions. But, you know, I've had those patients before where I've been sitting there and, you know, the kid's crying because he's about to miss the whole baseball season or whatever. And clearly time is the most important thing to them and they don't have a big fear of surgery. And I've found myself sitting there, you know, telling them that we're going to do non-op, but thinking to myself, like, if that was me, I would just want it drilled. I appreciate this paper giving, giving me some confidence to have that conversation and be more open to that option. All right, next up, out of JPO, 
This one is an impressive multi-center study. Um, it was centered at CHOP, but with uh, numerous hospitals. It's called anterior cruciate ligament tears following operative treatment of pediatric tibial eminence fractures, and they had uh, a whopping 385 tibial spine fractures. So um, overall, the good news of this study is that ACL tears were only 2.6% following tibial spine fractures. The bad news was that the follow-up in this study was very low, and so out of the patients that actually had two years of follow-up, the ACL tear was more like 20%. It didn't matter how the tibial spine was treated, uh, still the same rate of ACL tears. Um, so this doesn't answer all the questions on the topic. The tears tended to happen about 10 months after the fracture. Um, and so the authors, basically the big recommendation uh, was to follow these kids for a long time, for at least a year. You know, you could also make the case for just telling them to come back if they're having problems like knee instability or a big traumatic event. In either case, you should warn them that problems could develop down the line. So, you know, this kind of giant observational study is important. I'm glad someone's doing it. Um, I don't really see this one changing my practice right now, um, but hoping, hopefully opening the door to, to more studies by this group in the future. Any reactions to this paper? So there was some tibial spine talk for those of you who tuned into PRISM. And one of the things I know that came up and we started a discussion about was just, you know, should we be treating tibial spine fractures a little bit more like our ACL reconstructions in terms of the return to cutting, pivoting, impact, play, and kind of what we put into the rehab component of it? You know, most of us post-ACL reconstruction have some kind of progressive functional testing. Uh, I was going to make a similar point. This paper is interesting yet problematic, right? I mean, to say that on average, when we see this, it occurs at 10 months, but the bulk of our patients were only followed for six and a half months. Just It, it just says we don't really have the follow-up to understand this problem, which means that we probably should be following our patients for longer with this and not just kind of letting them fly. Um, and then I, I also do think, I mean, her point was a great one is that, you know, if, if it's happening, um, that soon out, is it just, is it because as soon as we see bony healing, we're kind of re ready to let them go rather than saying, actually, you've got to pay attention to rehabbing all this stuff and working on your, you know, functional movement and ACL injury prevention. And then, and maybe we'll be able to decrease this number, but I'm not sure we fully understand the number, I guess I would say. And then I guess the other thing to think about would be uh, how are we, you know, why is this happening? Is it, you know, the ones that are more comminuted or more displaced, are they not healing as well? Or was there more injury to the ACL in the first place? Is there a way that we could actually be able to see that um, in, order, and able to, in order to predict it or, you know, to get better bony fixation or to slow them down? Or is that a proxy for something or is it just a proxy for it's a higher energy injury and that's why it happened? And so probably there was more plastic deformation of the ACL and therefore it was more, more prone uh, to being injured, you know, going forward. So I think this opens a really um, interesting discussion, but I think it, what it tells us is that we just don't know enough. And, and so we have to do some more, some more work. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add on that note, uh, I think that's a good segue. We, we are, so I was involved in this uh, in this group and, and all that. Um, you know, this is based on the retrospective database that we have, uh, retrospective registry of several institutions. And so because it's retrospective, like you pointed out, I mean, the follow-up is very, very variable. And I think the exact numbers in terms of percentages and risks and stuff like that need to be taken with a bit of a grain of salt. There is that other uh, study from uh, Colorado from a few years back where they also looked at this and 
they found that rate to be pretty high of ACL tear after tibial spines too. So I think there is something going on. The question is, what is the exact number and why, right? I think Cordelia brought up a good point. You know, is it is it a matter of rehabbing them differently, like more like ACLs, or is it that there is some injury to the ACL itself at the time of tibial spine fracture, as we know is sometimes the case, um, or is it both? And I, I'd posit it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, I think, you know, you, you get this injury the same way you kind of get an ACL for the most part. And so you would imagine that, you know, the rehab should kind of incorporate some of the things we do for ACLs. For me, I will just, you know, for what it's worth, I, it, it's a shorter rehab than for ACLs, but I still do have them do functional testing and stuff like that before I clear them, hop tests and Y balance and some things like that. So is that right or wrong? I don't know. <laughs> uh, we're, we're trying to figure out more. And so the same group, we just started enrolling in our prospective cohort study now in these last few weeks. So that's slowly underway. It's going to take time, obviously, because this is a three in a hundred thousand injury or whatever. But with uh, like a dozen centers involved, hopefully, little by little, we'll collect this data and follow these kids out and and really get a better idea of, of what's going on with the ACL. As part of the prospective trial, are you? I mean, I think one of the things that I was surprised to see with this was how few had actually had a pre-op MRI to actually, so that you could maybe assess how much in, a DMR inflammation or whether of the ACL there was or whether. Um, there was, you know, actually partial thickness injury or something like that. I think um, I, I would imagine going forward that part of a prospective trial would be not not mandating, but at least strongly suggesting that imaging, which can also help us identify, you know, as you know, other injuries of the meniscus or, or cartilage. Yeah, great point, Cordelia. I think you know that that's a that's definitely a point that's come up a lot in our discussions in that group. And um, Justin Mistovich, in the last few months, uh, we published in AJSM. Uh, an article on the role in, uh, of MRI in these fractures and basically pointing out that you find a lot more concomitant injuries if you have an MRI versus if you don't, which it's kind of like a no duh. Um, but I think it's important to know, right, when you're planning surgery and stuff like that, as well as, like you said, looking at the ACL itself um, and getting a sense of what that's for. Um, we haven't made it mandatory for the prospective arm of the study, but I think there definitely is a general sort of push within the group to to get MRIs whenever possible. And that's another, I guess, discussion to have that we can go off on a tangent on. But, you know, there's downsides too, right? Like we're, we're actually writing up a paper from that group looking at causes of delayed surgery for tibial spines. And kids that got MRIs on average had, had more delayed surgery. So, you know, you could argue there's some pros and cons. How much does the delay even matter? I don't know. But I do think there is an important role for MRI here, and we'll hopefully flesh that out even better in the prospective study. So, Neeraj, you've been really, you've sort of jumped ahead. I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit about your involvement and sort of the next steps. You, you've given us a lot more thought than the average person. What what are your what would be sort of your your dream for this group in the long term? What's sort of the the holy grail for the tibial spine <laughs> fractures? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, th I think, you know, what we are starting to do is is hopefully going to be it. You know, I think it's it's tough to organize randomized control trials for tibial spine fractures. I mean, I think in an ideal world, it'd be cool to say, hey, like type two tibial spine fractures, operative or non-operative, you know, but because it's such a rare injury and you'd have such tight indications, that study would take, you know, like a decade to do or something like that, if, if, if that much. So, um, I think doing it in a in a sort of prospective cohort manner is probably the best way. And then just really, we are we are collecting a pretty large amount of data, a lot of fine data points in there. We're also going to be looking at classification. You know, there's I think definitely a lot of pitfalls with the Myers-McKeever classification, and you know how helpful is that? How helpful is it in terms of diagnosis and prognosis and guiding treatment? So we're looking at a lot of these different issues. Um, and even though it's not a randomized trial, I think it'll give us 
thus far anyway, the, the best data we'll, we'll have on tibial spine fractures because again, it's, it's so rare and it's all the data is really retrospective thus far. Great. I think if there's one takeaway from this discussion, it's probably the average surgeon out there treating tibial spine should make sure they're thinking of these not just as like a fracture, but as an ACL. And even though we don't have all the evidence, maybe consider ACL rehab to err on the side of caution. Next up out of JCO and from Australia is a study called Validity and Reliability of Smartphone Inclinometer Applications for Measurement of Elbow Range of Motion in Pediatric Patients. So pretty straightforward one. You know, it's not strictly a sports paper, but definitely applicable. And they basically measured elbow range of motion with a smartphone inclinometer and showed that it works great just as well as a traditional goniometer. So, I mean, my biggest question was why wasn't I using this more commonly in clinic? I already use an app called Scully Check to measure the angle of the rib hump in Scully patients. And today I downloaded a couple inclinometers and messed around with some of them. The one I liked the most was called Digital Level by a company called Rigid because it just shows the line all the way across your screen, makes it easier to get a reading. Uh, you know, I think I'll start using this in clinic more often. You know, it'd be nice to have a more a, a quick way to get a more objective measurement on you know range of motion after ACLs or whatever else. Is anyone using any of these or any other smartphone apps on a on a regular basis? I'm not. I, when I was at Yale, um, there was a lot of work being done on inclinometer for shoulder range of motions. Actually, you may have even seen that app. It's like the YROM, something like that. I think, um, so to me, this this says that, you know, the smartphones are just as good as a goniometer, but not better. And right. so, so, which is, I mean, which is not, I guess, neither here nor there. I think what would be really interesting would be to do a study where patients could do this at home. Right. And so because then for our, you know, the range of motion checks after a supercondylar or whatever it might be, you know, actually this to me, this has been something that's been really great for virtual visits because the parents are nervous and they want their kids to get checked. And you're like, but it's really, you know, it's it's kind of a wasted visit. It usually, you know, the vast majority of the time. But so it's so it's nice to just have a quick visit where you can look at them. But if you could look at them and actually have uh, one of the parents use their smartphones to actually measure the motion, I think, um, and to be able to do it accurately and reproducibly, or even before the visits, I think it, it would also be helpful. I mean, I think to me, that's how this could improve our practice. To me, it, it's not going to add to our practice because, again, we can use the goniometers because we're used to doing it. It's something we do all the time. But I think if we could have patients start to be able to do this at home independently, it could be useful. Could also have sort of a psychological boost if they're measuring at home and they're very aware of what it is and maybe just sort of automatically a little bit more motivated to uh, see Absolutely. improvements. I mean, this is for elbow, but think about our post-op ACL patients, right? Mm -hmm. Who, um, you know, you're like, what, you know, what is it? What they measure? And they're like, I don't know. And, <laughs> <laughs> but I think, right, I mean, it sort of takes some of the excuses away. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. I think, you know, I, I've definitely had a couple kids who it's been a little touch and go with their motion, with their knee motion post-op, whatever. And then they get so, they go to PT three times a week and they get the dynamic split and whatever. So by the end of it, the, even the seven-year-old kid with the tibial spine is like, yeah, they said I was one, two, seven the other day. And like, they're really into the numbers, right? So like Cordelia said, and, and Carter kind of said, yeah, I think this would be interesting for home where you say, hey, you know, you could, you could, you got some solid objective data in front of you. And, and now you have something to kind of like, you know, reach towards and, and, and goals to set and stuff like that. So I think a lot of potentially interesting uses of this. Next up, out of 
OJSM, the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine. This one is from Brazil, and it's called Tibial Tubercle Osteotomy with Distalization is a Safe and Effective Procedure for Patients with Patella Alta and Instability. I was really interested in this one because I think about distalization a lot, and I don't know the right answer in these patients. So they had 31 TTOs with distalizations. Uh, all the patients had both Alta and Instability. And they reported great, great results. The uh, average Caton de Champ ratio came from 1.4 to 1. Apprehension became negative in everyone. And the functional scores improved. And to me, most importantly, there were no non-unions. Overall, very good results. Of note, the patients who did have some persistent pain were more likely to have patellar cartilage defects. I think that's a major caveat to this study. What do you guys think? Is Are you guys doing distalizations on a regular basis or just medializing the tibial tubercle to compensate for Alta? Yeah, I'll, I'll usually distalize if their CDI is, uh, or Katana de Champs is, is abnormal. So typically if it's over 1.2, I'll do it. We've had good results so far, but again, you know, this is my own anecdotal experience. And uh, the paper that we're reading is also a case series, right? So it'd be interesting to know if, if you had a comparison group of people with similar uh, Champs and no TTO, how do they do? But I do it. It makes sense, at least from a theoretical standpoint, in a lot of different ways. And my patients have done well so far. But I do think, you know, again, like with any tibial tubercle osteotomy, you, you do need to think about if there are chondral lesions in that patella or the trochlea, where you're potentially placing those when you realign and stuff like that. So I think that's that's a good good thing to remember. And, you know, I'm sure you guys have plenty of experience with this as well. So I won't take all the mic time here, but when you distalize these people, the, the more you distalize them, the, the tighter things kind of get. So I could certainly understand why if you had a chondral lesion somewhere and then we're kind of tightening you down, that you may have some pain afterwards still and stuff like that. To me, it seems like it's an interesting group of patients that maybe had less of a lateralized tubercle and really just patella alta, you know? So I think the ongoing problem with some of the patellar instability research is that this is such a heterogeneous group of people. But I think like this one's reassuring because I worry about the non-union part of it when you take off that most distal hinge and are you doing osteotomies differently when you're distalizing in addition to medializing would be a question for a neurology. But um, the other thing I thought was interesting and why I feel like this is not an American study is that uh, very few seem to have painful hardware. And I don't know about you guys, but like these kids hate their screws so much, right? They did use 3.5s I noticed in the study. I've had better success with really small screws like that and being able to bury the screw heads. I'll tell you, I, I, I go six, five solid screws and, you know, I countersink them and try to get some soft tissue over or whatever, but I go six, five and knock on wood, I'm totally going to jinx myself now <laughs> after saying this, some kid's going to show up in clinic tomorrow, you know, with their screw poking out of their skin, but, um, I knock on wood, I haven't had any like real irritation issues so far. I use, uh, I think five Oh, uh, cannulated headless screws. And I've been pretty happy with, I mean, I've been, I haven't had to take any of those out. So it seems like it's a good size and it, it can still affect good compression. They do have to be bicortical, but, uh, and I haven't hit any hardware things. I mean, I think, Pam, your point was exactly the one I was going to make, which is, you know, they're talking about doing distalization for patients with instability, but in 54.8%, they're treating with medialization as well. Again, your exact point, like this is such a spectrum, you know, patellar instability more like as, as much as anything, if not more so, is so um, you have to individualize your treatment so much. And that's why we look at 
hip rotation and what your TTTG is and if you're lax and if you have a J sign and if you have trochlear dysplasia. It's the sum of all of those factors going in and then you sort of have to decide which ones are contributing most and where can you kind of get the most bang for your buck. So to date, I haven't, I have not done a distillization. I have a handful of patients that I think it might be useful for, but in my experience, it seems like the, the patella alta is generally very mild and part of this like larger picture. And if I can do an antramedialization and an MPFL reconstruction and generally get the outcome that I want. That's, that's pretty much always been my approach. I think at our institution too, we've got a pretty strong bias to, towards using medialization to compensate for other stuff. But I found this study really reassuring because I worry about that non-union rate and they were only fixing it with two relatively small screws and didn't have any, uh, any non-unions. So that might give me a little bit of courage to uh, be more aggressive with this. I think I would definitely, based on the study scope, look at the patella, make sure the cartilage looks beautiful before distalizing. You but, know, I didn't get into the weeds so much on this one. Did they report a BMI too and like smoking? Because these patients are a little bit older too, right? They're 28.7. So those are things that in, in, that are not U.S. We, the BMI may have been more optimized and other things that maybe contribute to non-union that may be more of a, of a, of a problem here. The other thing I was going to say is, you know, these surgeries were done for patellar instability, but at some point, too, they're sort of done as like joint preservation. And so, and so then if you're thinking from like a joint preservation standpoint, it's, it's, it's still a little bit of a short follow-up period of less than three years. Yeah, definitely. I don't remember seeing BMI. They did keep the patients in extension for six weeks while ambulating, but they actually let them bear weight immediately, which I don't typically do after TTOs, and I almost certainly wouldn't do after distillization, but it seems to work for them. All right, next up, we're going to JCO, and this is a study from Loma Linda called Modified Langenskold Procedure for Chronic, Recurrent, and Congenital Patellar Dislocations. So these authors are basically describing the most challenging kinds of patellar dislocations, and they had 18 knees in 13 patients. This is a procedure, the Langenskold, that was classically defined for congenital dislocation specifically, sort of like we were just talking about. This was often a, a sort of complex decision with multiple procedures sort of put together, including tibial tubercle osteotomies, MPFLs, lateral releases, etc., but this actual modified Langenskold involves separating the extensor mechanism and the actual patella from the underlying synovium, closing up the hole in the synovium where the patella was attached, making a new hole more medially, and then putting the patella in that new location. So overall, they uh, <laughs> seems like a recurring theme. They reported very good results, especially in the congenitals and the recurrent dislocations. In the chronic ones, one of their patients who had bilateral procedures had repeat dislocations on both sides after about a year. What, what do you guys like to do for these challenging dislocations, chronic, congenital, et cetera? Yeah, these are, these are hard. And, uh, you know, I, I defer to those of you who are more experienced than I do in this, but it, it's, it's, it's hard, I think. But I think, you know, like Cordelia kind of said for the last paper, with all kinds of patellar instability, there's just so many factors that go into it. So, you know, I think there's a soft tissue stuff and all that, obviously, but also, you know, what's your hip rotation? What's your standing alignment at the knees, your laxity, um, all these kind of issues as well. And then the other thing for me also, you know, not to skip over it is in terms of indications, right? Like, uh, for example, I had a girl who came to me when she was 15, I want to say, and um, had a, a congenital dislocation of her kneecap and someone referred her for potential surgery 
but she was totally fine. You know, she was living her life. She was like in marching band. She was able to do that. She was happy. I said, listen, we don't need to be rushing into doing tons of surgery then. That's fine. So then she came back a year later. She got sort of more into fitness and was going to the gym a lot and becoming more active in sports and that kind of stuff. Now she was actually feeling limited by her knee and her strength and some of the other things. So we ended up doing it and it's been tough. Um, my biggest problem, and I'd love to hear you know how you guys kind of get around it, is is managing the quad. The, the quad in these kids sort of turns from an extensor to a flexor and it's kind of twisted and on the side of the leg and, you know, in no man's land and it's super tight. And so, you know, obviously there's different ways to do quadriceps plasties and stuff like that. But I'd, I'd love to know what, what you guys kind of typically do, how you do that, kind of how you manage after. This girl, she's still very slowly chugging along, very slowly getting her motion back a couple degrees a week, kind of at a time. She's like six months out now and finally making some headway with her motion. But she she just got real stiff, I think largely because of the tightness of that quad after we realigned everything. We did a DFO, we did a TTO, we did an MPFL, we did a big lateral release, we did a quadriceps all of the above. So anyway... I'd love to hear what other people sort of do. Do they do this Lang and Skull type of procedure? What do you look at? How do you manage these kids post-op? How, how do you make it work and not feel not feel like uh, you did the wrong thing for the kid? I don't. I'm not magic, Pam. Do you have ideas? <laughs> these are uh, these are really really challenging. I find one of the most challenging groups the groups that have kind of the congenital picture that are symptomatic at a young age. And you kind of have this mind of like what they need um, and you want to do bony work and you just can't yet. And that, that's where I struggle a lot. Um, you know, you can do guided growth for alignment correction. And I don't know, I've never been too interested in doing too much and burning bridges if I'm going to be doing guided growth for alignment correction, because you don't quite know what that's going to do. But you always kind of feel like you need to do something else. I think there's some paper out there that even talks about guided growth alone isn't enough, right? Like you have to do something else in addition, but the quad is a big issue. Um, and the kids that start with a problem early and then as they get older, become more of that habitual picture where they're out in flexion because of how tight their quad is and the vastus lateralis seeming to be the primary contributor to the quad tendon. I think that's a big challenge. You almost have to release the whole kind of vastus contribution and medialize it. Mm -hmm. And then they almost have no vastus medialis, right? So it's not like you can even do like VMO advancement. They just don't really have much tendon from the VMO. Like they're never minimally invasive procedures. Like, you know, you, you threw everything at that girl, right? But I think the question is sometimes you can do that, but when you see them younger in particular and they're skeletally immature and maybe you're doing some guided growth and preparing them for a later surgery, how much do you do at the first surgery so that you don't burn bridges later on and have to deal with like recurrence and quads tightening up again? Um, I have found that in those kids where you're doing some kind of quad plasty and all that kind of stuff, initially having them locked in flexion for a little bit, immediately post-op, whether it's in a brace or in a long leg cast, like even just two weeks in flexion can kind of maintain some of that lengthening. And then hypothetically, when they're in a slightly more flexed position, they're going to be a little more stable. I have no magic other than that. It's <laughs> a constant battle. And 
like I think you question a lot of what to do when, uh, when they're mature, I think you can kind of throw the kitchen sink at them a little bit easier, but you're doing so much work. Stiffness is certainly something that, that you worry about. And these kids take forever to get quad strength back forever. I think, well, I was gonna make a lot of, actually, it's almost like we trained at the same place because uh, I was gonna make a lot of the same points, I think. Um, but one of the things I would say is that, you know, recurrent patellar dislocators, chronic patellar dislocators and congenital patellar dislocators are not all the same. And so I really like the point you made about flexion, uh, flexion range instability versus like what we usually think about as recurrent instability. Cause you know, it, it's a different problem you're gonna treat differently. Hmm. Um, and I think, and so, so one of your points too, I mean, I think um, <laughs> I was thinking your point about how it's not a little surgery. I had one of these um, recently that was honestly, it was a huge, it's a huge reconstruction, right? You're doing huge releases, huge transfers. Um, and uh, it was what the residents presented it at our big department conference at, at the case conference is like an interesting case. And uh, I had dictated in my op report, we made a 10 centimeter incision and then they're showing the pictures. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> Started with 10. <laughs> but they're not, I mean, it's not, uh, it's big reconstructive work, as you say. Yeah, which again, I think, you know, goes back to the idea of indications and stuff like that, right? I mean, and I don't, I don't know if we know for sure, you know, depending on age, like if you, like Pam said, if you have a, a young patient who has this kind of issue, when's the right time and when's the right patient to jump in and do something? If you're an older patient, same thing, same questions. So again, I think it, it boils down to making sure we somehow try to pick the right patients and making sure that they understand that, hey, this is not like a small, <laughs> a small thing. You're in it for the long haul. Um, and then hopefully that, that helps them get good outcomes. But I, I am, uh, all open to, to any wisdom from anyone else for, for these kids. I, I enjoy it. I think it's like a fun challenge to have, you know, that's why we do this stuff, right? I, it, it's fun to have those challenges, but it can be hard. Yeah. I think that's as good a conclusion as any for this one. Up next back to OJSM. Uh, this is a paper from Boston Children's and it is called operative treatment of bipartite patella in pediatric and adolescent athletes. Maybe most impressively, they had 266 bipartite patients. Um, that was over 15 years. 10% of them ended up getting surgery. And uh, most commonly, they were female competitive athletes, and they got a whole wide range of treatments. It was a you know, very retrospective study. They had fragment excision, screw fixation, lateral release, uh, even drilling of the synchondrosis. 15% of those needed a reoperation. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not seeing 266 in 15 years. I, I can't remember the last time I saw one. Certainly haven't operated on any. But my big takeaway from this paper is don't be afraid to operate on these if it keeps hurting. It sort of reminded me of like, you know, like a lateral malavulsion. Usually they're fine and don't cause any problems. But every now and then there's a little obstacle that hurts and you take it out and they feel better. Or even like a coccyx non-union. You know, not that we do a lot of that. But if you have to do a coccygectomy and take out a painful one, they feel better. So not something we do often, but... It can work. All right. So I'm sending all my pus to Madison and all my coccyx pains to, to New Orleans. That's, <laughs> that's my new I'm Put them on the plane. Yeah. We're contributing to New Orleans tourism, please. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the treatment range, I'm sure, is based on the size of the fragment, right? Gigantic fragment, you're maybe going to fix. Smaller, you're maybe going to excise. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I think of it maybe almost like Osgood Schlatter's ossicles, like they're there. And a lot of people, they're kind of remnant of something. Some people have issues with them. And if you can really localize it to that spot, 
I mean, maybe you can do something to go after it, but ultimately it's just one of the contributors to patellofemoral pain, right? I think it's sort of like an accessory navicular, right? Yeah. Pain through that, uh, maybe through that synchondrosis. I have taken one out. Um, just, it was, it was so big and so symptomatic and the kid did fine. But I think, um, this is one of those, there's, there's this many treatments recommended because we don't know the answer. And it's something that, that we still, this is just telling us we still don't know the answer that like, sometimes we recommend surgery and sometimes when kids choose it, they sometimes get better and sometimes they don't. So, um, but I guess it's helpful. I mean, I think being able to say, you know, a, a competitive female athlete who presents maybe later in the course. Um, as somebody, this is actually saying that's somebody who is more likely to have had surgery. I still, I'm still not sure it's, it's somebody who would benefit from surgery. It's, it's <laughs> more likely to have it. So, I, I mean, I, to me, this just highlights it's, um, it's some, it's something that we still sort of poorly understand. And ideally, you, you know, would be a great, uh, another one of those great ones for like multi-center retrospective database collections, just to see if we can hone our knowledge a little bit more. All right, next up, more Japanese baseball elbows. So AJSM, uh, an article called Predictors of Failure of Return to Play in Youth Baseball Players After Capitellar Osteochondritis Discans, focused on elbow valgus laxity and radiocapitellar congruity. So basically, the authors wanted to figure out um, how to predict whether non-op would work for a capitellar OCD. And we've talked about some of these uh, Japanese baseball studies before and just the um, impressive volume of patients with some of these elbow conditions that they're able to study. And this is another example. The first takeaway to me was that, and not super surprisingly, but good to see, the early OCDs with no fragmentation were much more likely to get better. Almost 90% of those got better. More like 60% of the ones with fragmentation were getting better with non-op. And then, I guess a little more interestingly, the authors described a new measurement that they called proximal radial translation. In other words, they posit that Patients where the radial head is more proximal on the AP x-ray are less likely to recover with non-op, probably because the radial head is putting a little more pressure on the capitellum. So on one hand, this sounds pretty theoretical, but on the other hand, it sounds sort of familiar if we think about the, the other end of the radius. You know, we know that if the radius is long distally compared to the ulna, you have a risk of Keenbox, and if the ulna is too long, you have a risk of, risk of ulnar impaction syndrome. So this is sort of like the corollary at the elbow is what this study is suggesting. Interesting. Don't see it changing my practice right now. Any reactions to this study? My first reaction is how did they get so many early stage capitellar OCDs? Because in my practice, they all have fragmentation and loose bodies. And like rarely do I ever get to see one that's stable. You need to start screening the uh, Wisconsin Little (laughs) Leagues. Apparently. I I like your point, though, about can you correlate it at all to what we see at the wrist with ulnar impaction and Keenbox? And um, shout out to my partner, Ken Noonan. He's kind of thought of that uh, as well in in regards to like AVN of the capitellum after lateral condyle fracture, say, uh, more so than. Interesting. But, you know, can you manage some of those kids with a radial shortening? I I don't know the answer to it, but uh, it's something that's gone on. Head at least. So I should show in this. Yeah, I think that that brings up an interesting point, right? When you have OCDs about the knee and let's say angular deformity at the knee, we, we now talk quite a lot about correcting deformity at the knee and stuff like that. So I wonder, you know, the elbow is obviously a very different joint, but do we need to look a little closer at some of these uh, other factors, bony alignment, you know, length of the radius, all that kind of stuff? And does that somehow need to be 
incorporate into our algorithm? Um, I don't know the answer, but again, interesting food for thought. Yeah, add carrying angle to that too. My my takeaway from this is probably what I've said before, which is that if, <laughs> I think this I think these injuries could be avoided, having to be treated. Um, you know, and so I I mean I think that. The, the, Are you suggesting prophylactic radius shortening osteotomies for baseball little leaguers? <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. At the age of seven, <laughs> you get referred. Uh, no, I mean we know this is a repetitive overuse injury, and 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 which means that if you avoid that repetitive overuse, you can ideally avoid avoid the injury. If it you know if it happens, then it's nice to be able to identify it early because you know the study is saying a lot of them you know the vast majority of them do actually get better without surgery, but ideally they're they're prevented. And then I think time will tell like what, how useful this radiographic measure is. You know we all I think for discoids hung our hat for a while on some of the you know the radiographic findings that now seem that, well either they're so intricate that you don't actually use them in daily life or maybe they're not as helpful as you once thought, but. You know, maybe this is um, maybe this is a sign of early, uh, you know, early change at the other side of the joint, and that, and so maybe, you know, maybe that's really what it's telling us. This is actually, even though it looks like it is stable, it is actually a little bit further along, you know, the spectrum of, of disease. But to me, again, my biggest take home is, man, the fact that you use the word impressive that they have so many, but I think it's more like, you know, it's one of the infamous versus famous. It's not, it's not impressive. Ideally, we're preventing them. Good point. Did you catch um, how long overall non-operative treatment was on average? I don't remember off the top of my head. I don't know. I figured it was a, probably a pretty reasonable length because so many of them did seem to be getting better. And that, that goes back to our first paper discussion of how long are families and patients here willing to wait and willing to not throw. Yeah, that's true. Maybe by uh, treating some of those OCDs earlier, we're subtly <laughs> encouraging single sport year-round participation. I don't know. It does look like it says, uh, I think it just kind of gives a broad, as was standard, between three and six months of rehab was necessary to determine whether to continue with rehabilitation or convert to surgery. So Got it. Okay. three to six months, I guess, is what they did. All right. Next up, back to arthroscopy. This one is straight out of London. Predictors of pediatric ACL injury, the influence of steep lateral posterior tibial slope and its relation to the lateral meniscus. So this is another one of these sort of a little bit in the weeds kind of anatomy studies. Um, and I'm not going to go into too much detail, but basically the authors here were trying to expand our knowledge of the knee anatomy that leads to ACL ruptures in kids. Um, so we already know about some things, valgus alignment, steep posterior slope, the width of the notch. Um, and these authors added a couple features that they looked at. So not just the posterior tibial slope, but specifically the posterior slope of the lateral plateau. And when this is a lot steeper than the medial plateau, they suggested that it can allow pivoting. And worst of all, they found is a steep lateral plateau and a shallow lateral meniscus, because then the posterior horn of the lateral meniscus isn't resisting pivoting like you'd want it to. You know, I think this is another good and very thoughtful paper that won't currently change my practice, but will hopefully lead to some, uh, you know, maybe further studies or maybe even screening programs looking at some of this stuff. Any other reflections on this one? My big question for a lot of these anatomy papers that look at risk factors, you can risk stratify, but what can you actually change? Maybe you can see it. Maybe it would make you do something different in a primary ACL reconstruction, knowing they have that. But are you going to change it unless they're skeletally immature? 
Well, you're not going to change it with an osteotomy, but I think if you can, again, put kids in a bucket of, we know that, you know, all kids under 20 have a really high retear rate after a primary ACL reconstruction. And so, and we've said, well, what are the reasons for that? And we've looked at, is it our grafts? Is it our, you know, is it our tunnel placement? Is it, uh, is it our rehab? Is our psychological readiness? But I think when we start to look at some of the things that were mentioned, like, is there a lot of um, hyperlaxity or is there excessive valgus? And then put an increased, you know, tibial slope is one of the other things that sometimes that that would be my indication for adding a lateral extraticular tenodesis. Yeah. And so I have started doing that. I haven't, I, I don't have long-term, you know, I don't have long-term data on my own patients with that. But I think, I think if you can say, well, you know, just based on virtue of your age, the sports you want to play and, and, you know, the, the knowledge that we have about you know, outcomes after primary ACL in your category, we now can say, well, you're in even higher risk. And I feel like there is something that we can sometimes do in the primary ACL reconstruction. Hey, Cordelia, you, you took the words right out of my mouth and I don't want to sound like an ALL, LET fanatic or anything by any means, but, um, you know, it, it, it is an interest of mine as uh, I've bored you guys with in the past. But I think, you know, th- this study is kind of suggesting that, hey, if your lateral tibial slope and the height of your lateral meniscus or whatever are abnormal, then that results in, you know, potentially greater rotational instability. So then, like Cordelia kind of kind of mentioned, are those people that then may benefit from having a, an LET or an ALL, that kind of procedure, to kind of reinforce some of that that rotational stability. So again, this is still just kind of anatomic and all that, but I think maybe there is a solution for for what these authors are are bringing up. And so we are, I think I mentioned this before, we're, we're just about finally about to start enrolling in a randomized control trial for ALL reconstruction in kids, and we are going to be measuring uh, lateral medial uh, lateral uh, tibial slope as well as medial tibial slope and notch width and some other parameters. And so you know, it'll be interesting to see if there is a uh, benefit to maybe doing an ALL in people that have uh, an increased lateral tibial slope. I think it goes along with that population that has tons of hyperextension in there. For some reason, you kind of see that together and you'll see it on their x-rays almost. Um, Not always just laxity, but sometimes it's, it's tibial slope that's giving them that. But, you know, those kids that have 15, 20 degrees of hyperextension, very real. I agree with all of that with the lateral extraarticular tenodesis ALL kind of group. Yeah, great points. Um, I'm looking forward to the day, Neeraj, when you uh, make a ALL calculator that I can plug a patient's info into and it'll tell me if I should do it or not. And I also <laughs> wanted to give you a shout out for your awesome video on the arthroscopy website of a pediatric LET, which I uh, recently looked at to prepare for a case. Not that you're a fanatic or anything. <laughs> Thanks. I'm, I'm just a nerd. You know, that's what it comes down to. And um, I, I tell everybody, I, I, look, I don't I don't know what the answer is. I don't think anyone that tells you they know exactly what the answer is, is, is sort of full of it at this point. But I think there definitely is a role for these ALL and LET procedures. And we just need to figure out kind of what that what that is exactly, especially in the pediatric population. So we'll see. Yeah, it seems like hopefully it's going to turn out to be a pretty powerful tool in the right patients. All right, last up, thank you for your endurance. Out of knee surgery, sports traumatology, and arthroscopy, KSSTA from Italy, is a paper called An Arthroscopic Repair Technique for Proximal ACL Tears in Children. And, you know, we touch on this a little bit every week, every uh, episode. Um, so slightly different technique, but basically they, they had a cohort of about 20 patients who were Tanner stage one or two. I'm not sure how you guys are on your Tanner stages, but, uh, I'm a little out of practice. They were average age nine, if that's more helpful. They basically used a technique where they 
started with a spinal needle to pass a PDS through the uh, the stump. They prepared the um, the footprint with a few drill holes, put in an anchor, used the uh, PDS to shuttle the anchor tails through, and tied it down. So not all that different than some of the other techniques we've talked about. And uh, sticking with our theme, overall very good results in this study with 18 out of 19 patients getting back to the same level of sports at an average of eight and a half months. Um, So maybe a little faster than we'd expect for ACL reconstructions. And they had four re-ruptures, usually about four years later. So, you know, we seem to talk about this every episode. Does this this change anything? Is anyone uh, ready to start dabbling with ACL repairs? I don't know how much it changes right off the bat. I mean, I think at present with what we know and what we have at our disposal as far as techniques and instrumentation, I think the indications for ACL repair are still fairly narrow. So if you're going to do it, I think you got really got to pick the right patient. And I'll admit, I haven't really had those people come through my doors. Uh, not yet. Again, I haven't been to this forever. So, so we'll see, but, and this is also obviously involving, there's been the bear trial and other things. So I think as we develop more of this stuff, maybe, you know, we'll, we'll be able to kind of make better, uh, better recommendations on who should get this and who should not. I think this is interesting, but again, yeah, it's a case series. And I think the other thing that sort of jumps out a little bit is I think four graft failure or uh, four retairs uh, out of, I think it was 18 patients, excuse me, 14 patients that reached two years of follow-up, right? So four out of 14, not, not really great. I mean, that's not really better than an ACL reconstruction in this age group, I would say. So, you know, they say the results are good, but are they really? I don't know. Um, and it's a case series, so there's no control group or, or comparison group. So we, we don't really have that either. Definitely. And as we reviewed last time, some other recent literature had had much uh, less, you know, even worse results in, in these relatively young, not quite this young, but in the younger cohort of patients getting ACL repairs. But at the least, these patients seem to get back to sports, at least anecdotally in this study, a little bit faster. And you haven't burned any bridges if they re-rupture. But... Well, like you said, why it's so appealing, right? If you can save the patient's native tissue and you don't have to drill tunnels. And I mean, it's, it's so appealing to, and it's why we all want to do it, but it's, the, I agree. The indications are so tight. And I also agree. These outcomes are not great. These are not even non-inferior. These are inferior outcomes to the poor outcomes <laughs> that we already have for, um, for pediatric ACL injury. I mean, I think, especially when you look at it for this age group, the nine-year-olds, you're looking at the outcomes of um, IT band extraficeal or the all both of the re-rupture rates in the, for those surgeries in this age group are way less than 20%. So this is not even non-inferior. This actually is inferior, but I also think it, it sort of harkens back to where we started this talking about the tibial spines, because does this actually tell us that when, you know, that there's actually some um, cascade that happens at the time of injury and whether it's plastic deformation or something happens to the ligament itself, that even when it is preserved by, you know, by um, reaffixing the bone or reattaching it proximally, um, it's just unable to, to do its job at the level uh, that's required. And it would so, be interesting to know when, when they do re-tear, you know, where, where are they re-tearing, right? Are they re-tearing proximally mm-hmm. again where the initial injury was, or is it mid-substance somewhere, which maybe does imply that there was some ex- extra stretch or plastic deformation or, or, or something else. So, or an at-risk um, knee in the first place? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, hard to make something out of, out of a case series of 14 patients. But, uh, man, I, I hope somebody figures out how to repair these consistently successful way because I, I think that would be amazing. But uh, we're just not there yet. So let me ask you guys, uh, maybe to wrap things up, in your hands, in these patients, 9, 10-year-old, 
is there an indication for repair? They come in with this very proximal, almost an avulsion, or are all these getting an over-the-top IT band? Yeah, for me, it, it, like you said, if it's an avulsion, uh, I think of it almost like, like an inverse tibial spine, you know? So if there's actually bone, then give it a shot. Um, if there's not bone, then I wouldn't do it. I don't come from the, uh, the exalted Boston lineage, so I don't have experience <laughs> with the IT band. But I, I do all of the even in, in very young kids, and, and mm. they seem to knock on wood, do okay. Um, so that's probably what I would do. But if there was bone, I would, I would give it a shot in that situation. Yeah, I think I think the bone part, uh, whether you can see it, and usually you can see it. I've had uh, maybe one of those in a PCL, femoral-sided PCL avulsion, where there's just that little bit of bone that comes off with it and fixing it basically the reverse way of your tibial spine. Um, to me, their technique in here seemed more complicated than just stitching the end and pulling it through little teeny tunnels. But, you know... I, for full soft tissue, I'm doing a um, intraarticular, extraarticular IT band ACL. Mm-hmm. I agree with what was already said already about a bony avulsion. Like that's the indication to to at least talk to the family about doing a repair and and then just citing some of this literature that you know no bridges are burnt, but it, but it's it, it's an imperfect surgery at, at the least. But it might be interesting to think about actually augmenting your repair with an IT band. So I so I've thrown this idea out there on a tibial spine refracture, kind of the older adolescent age group where uh, you might see ACL tears more commonly post tibial spine. This was a actually tibial spine refracture where there was bony fragment uh, on the second time around as well. Where if you didn't know their history, you would probably just fix the tibial spine fracture and had gotten back to like soccer or whatever. And so the question is, if you're gonna go and you're gonna ever try a repeat tibial spine fixation, number one, would you do that? Number two, okay, if you're gonna do that, what would it be like if you just kind of backed it up with the IT band as well, versus do you just do an ACL reconstruction for the age that they are? And say it's a kid who can have tunnels, but maybe you have to respect the growth plate just a little bit still. So they need soft tissue. Like that's a situation where I don't know what the right answer is, uh, but it came up in my world uh, in the last month. So I don't know. I'd love to hear what you guys think. (laughs) Well, the first thing I would say is, man, that's that's like a lightning striking twice kind of thing, right? Because again, tunnel spines three in a hundred thousand injuries that happened twice. And I will say from, from the retrospective registry that we had with all those hundreds of patients, I mean, even just getting a, a non, I think there's like one kid or two, maybe out of like the 400 that went on to non-union, let alone like refractors. So for better, for, for worse, I think what you've got is really, really uncommon. Um, well, yeah. And I mean, maybe this is one of those kids that's got like 20 degrees of knee hyperextension. Like they fit the criteria where if it's your ACL patient, you're like, dang, I maybe want to consider that lateral extraarticular tenodesis at least. But yeah, I mean, what do you do in that case? Like you put a graft in, I'm terrified you just tear his graft right away. <laughs> yeah. And for, I think for that reason, if there's still good bone and good anatomy and all that, I'd probably still just treat it like a tibial spine again. Um, just like you would with any other, like a forearm that breaks again, I guess, you know, you just kind of treat it, but I don't know, maybe you throw in a, an LET or something like that. If they do have risk factors for recurrent, uh, you know, ACL or tibial spine type injuries. Um, I don't think that's something that's been talked about, 
but this is a very special situation. So maybe there is a role for it there. I think it's a really interesting idea. I mean, I'll say, um, you know, the, the thinking about using an um, autographed iliotibial band as a, as your uh, graft for an LET is from the, the Texas Scottish Rite paper that was doing that for the kids that they identified. You know, they were using that to augment their primary ACL reconstructions and, and the kids who were at a special um, risk for re-tear and, and documented, in, you know, lower rates. And so it does seem to have a role, but I think especially if it's in your your, your toolkit and, and you've already got a kid who's a, a one-time fail, like, I think it, you won't really have burned any bridges by thinking about doing an ITM, right? You're just going to, you're going to still have all the, like the proprioceptive neurons, right? By, by keeping the native tissue, you might think about why it failed at the bone again, I guess, right? And whether it was a, a non-union and, you know, all the reasons for that and what about the fixation and that kind of stuff. But I think it's kind of interesting to think about augmenting that with an iliotibial band. Pam, is this one coming up or is this one you've already done and you can give us the big reveal? No, this is one I, so I threw out there, we can fix it again. You know, you failed once. We seem to have radiographic evidence of healing after the first time, but you know, it wasn't a CT scan. It was radiographic. And so I threw out, we can fix it again. We can fix it and do kind of the lateral extraarticular tenodesis concept of what can we do to try and keep you from fracturing again. And then I brought up the concept of just doing an ACL reconstruction versus like augmenting the tibial spine fixation with uh, an IT band kind of ACL essentially. And they are like thinking (laughs) basically. I think I like overwhelm them a little bit, but we'll see what happens to be continued. I'll let you know. Yeah, please do. All right. Perfect way to wrap things up. Thank you guys. All right. All right. Good night, guys. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Bye.